Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host of Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national consulting firm providing strategy and search to only nonprofits in this country. And with us as always is Ashley Watterson, our tepid producer. Can you say tepid? Is that <laughs> is that better than mediocre? I like tepid because tepid to me is warm and warm right. is on its way to hot. So I'll take tepid. <laughs> So I want everybody to know that this is a holiday and both Ashley and I are working, though Ashley is in her cabin in Arrowhead, right? Big Bear, where are you? Somewhere in the snow. Yeah, I'm in Lake Arrowhead. I am on the floor in the furthest corner of this cabin because my son and my parents and my husband are running around. And so if anyone hears any like giant thuds and then me saying, I got to go you'll know that there was like a massive accident in the house. <laughs> well, this is, this, is, this is why I'm so impressed with you, Ashley, is because you are on vacation. You are sitting, I wish people could see it, crouched in the corner of the room with your cell phone above your face. It's, I mean, that's, if that's not tepid dedication, I don't know what is. Tepid dedication and also the way you're describing me holding the phone is very much to give the best angle of my face. So you're not looking into my nostrils or at like fat folds around my chin. I have to tell you, so, you know, I've grown back this facial hair and I don't think I like it. I'm really at a loss. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You don't like the haggard look that you're sporting right now? I just don't know what to do. Should I shave? Should I not shave? I feel like this would be like a Instagram question. Let's just go ahead and tell everyone the reason that we're having this call right now with me on the floor of a cabin on the holiday weekend is because you are scrambling to get everything done before you go to Europe, you bastard. Yep. And while you are there, you will undoubtedly take amazing selfies of you and your gorgeous husband outside of all of the landmarks and on, you know, a double-decker bus. So we will need some of those pictures of you with your facial hair. So that we can post to Instagram pictures of you with this facial hair and without, and then we can ask people to weigh in on their thoughts on where you should go with your facial hair. So what you're telling me is I have to keep it at least for my trip. That's what you're saying. I think so. I think this is a question that needs to go back to the people. And here's another question, Matt. For like Movember, have you ever done anything crazy like a, like a Fu Manchu? Here's what happened. I, I did, and I just had a mustache, and my partner in New York, Suzanne, sent me basically a video recording of her laughing. And that was it. <laughs> so, and was that the end of that? Then you just shaved it at that point? Or ever, was that validation to keep it going? Ever since Suzanne Elliott, who lives in New Jersey and works in New York, <laughs> who is a partner of Envision Consulting, sent me a video recording of her laughing at my mustache. It is now gone. I can never grow a mustache. Thank you very much, Suzanne, for making me feel like shit about myself. <laughs> Well, if your business partners can't make you feel like shit about yourself, who can? Suzanne's like the only person who listens to this podcast anymore, and she does it when she's running. So as she's running right now, I really hope that you tripped. <laughs> <laughs> touche. Oh, yes, touche. <laughs> I don't want to make you sit on the floor much longer. I feel like it's okay for us to get to the point, talk about the show, and let you go back to the snow. Let's talk about this episode with Lori Lacqua who is the managing director of the Smuin Contemporary Ballet Company in San Francisco. So I was excited about two things. I was excited that this was a another podcast in San Francisco. I was really proud of us for going back up Northern California. And the other reason why I was excited is because you and I actually have something in common, and that is that we can talk shit about ballet. This is a great way for us to introduce a show with the managing director of a ballet company by just talking shit about ballet. Matt and I really thought that made a lot of sense. So my relationship with ballet is that my mom and my sister were super into it and I could not have been less interested in it, but I went to a lot of ballet and I really have a great appreciation for ballet now. But yeah, as a kid, oof, it was kind of brutal. Can I share something with you, just with you, that is completely inappropriate? So my mom used to take me to the Joffrey Ballet as a kid, and we would always go to the Nutcracker. And as a gay kid, and I feel like I talked about this with Lori, the packages on the male ballerinos were very exciting to me. And every time that I would think of the Nutcracker, that's what I thought about. We just lost every listener 
left, including my mother. <laughs> and she loves ballet. So look, look, if it's any consolation, my mom made me gay and she made me gay <laughs> watching ballet every single time the Joffrey Ballet was at the music center. And there you go. There you go. He made you gay, whereas my mom tried her best to make me into a like super feminine ballet loving girl and just failed miserably. I'm not sure if they got what they wanted in these scenarios or not, but <laughs> but it's interesting because you said your mom was on the board of the Joffrey Ballet and my mom was on the board of the School of American Ballet. So Matt, there was really no escaping this for us. But I will say actually that it was always meant to be for you and me to be together and for all of our audience listeners to just be so annoyed or laugh their ass off. I don't know which one at the two of us. And I thank both of our mothers for dragging us to the ballet and for teaching us all we know so that I could do a good interview for Lori. Awesome. We should also put a disclaimer here that no, Matt and I do not honestly believe that people can be made gay. <laughs> we just want the disclaimer out there so we don't get the hate mail. <laughs> We've lost everyone. If there is anyone still out there, please do enjoy this great interview with Lori Lacroix of the Smuin Contemporary Ballet in San Francisco. Hello, Lori Lacqua. How are you tonight? Peachy Keen. All right, Peachy Keen. So because this is a happy hour show and you are in Northern California, which means we're not in person, what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a bourbon by Joseph Magnus, which is quite wonderful. And it distinguishes itself in being a triple cask finish. I'm going to let you for our audience member who is still with this show that uh, I'm basically a bourbon drinker all the time. So you're oh. you're speaking to my my heart. So thank you. I'm doing Elijah Craig tonight. So cheers to you, my Cheers friend. indeed. So we've done some performing arts interviews before, but not as many as I would love. And you're in Northern California in the performing arts world going in our third year of COVID. And so... I think there's a lot to talk about, and our goal for this show really is to have fun, but also for folks to get something out of it. It is a happy hour after all, yeah. and so I'd love to know, just before we start about your organization and more about specifically what you guys do, I'd love to know why you got into the performing arts in the first place. It was almost by accident. I almost fell into it, and that is I was in graduate school, the University of Virginia, School of Architecture, getting a PhD in architectural history. Finished all my coursework and my orals and came out to the Bay Area to do research at UC Berkeley. And after about a year here, I was applying for fellowships and, and I didn't get any. And so a friend of mine who's a classmate at UVA said, well, why don't you talk to my mom? She runs a dance company. Maybe she needs some help and could pay you. And I was like, all right. So I asked her and she said, can you write grants? And I said, well, obviously not very well. I just didn't get any of the fellowships that I applied for. She said, great, here, try this one. And it got funded at $15,000 on my first shot. And I was like, oh, oh, maybe I can do this. <laughs> Who knows? So I just ended up staying on with it. And then I left that organization after 20 years and went to a theater organization for five years. And now it's been five years at a ballet company. So it, it stuck. <laughs> what I love about that story, and I find that to be the case in a lot of folks that we interview here, is that we really do fall into our roles in nonprofit kind of just like by chance. So your friend, had you talked to her mom and she was like, write a grant. The fact that you got like a $15,000 grant right away. I mean, in the nonprofit space, that probably paid for like five years of your salary at least. <laughs> I, I think at that time it paid for about a third of the year. <laughs> I mean, it was 30 years ago, so... Oh, God. Yeah, you know, you've probably gotten a 10% raise since then. So I was rolling in the dough. <laughs> so in the time that you've been in performing arts and seeing all the things that you have, what's the most exciting thing for you about running an arts program? I have to say it's probably the passion of the people involved. I mean, if somebody's going to choose a life as a dancer, they're doing it out of love and passion. They're not doing it out of get rich or anything else. So it's really an attraction to the passion that people feel for the art form. Having studied architecture, this idea of movement inside a space and the creation of spatial volumes 
And to see these people doing it with another perspective on it. I mean, I was coming at it from an academic architecture place and here they were coming at it from a artistic creative means. And the choreographer that I was working for at the time just builds beautiful spaces, volumes on stage. And and the people that she was hiring were just very interesting. It wasn't a job for them. It was a passion. And I was really taken by that. It's not often you get to do what you really love. And so to be around that and hope that it shines on me, great. Uh, I'll take it if I can get it. Architecture really does play in our lives in so many different ways. And I don't think people think about it aside from buildings, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have an architecture degree, you build a building, whatever it is, but like it is so much more. And to hear you talk about that through ballet, through dance, through movement, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, it really is because you do encounter architecture every day. There's utilitarian functional, functional architecture, and then there's the architecture of space. And that is not the same thing. It's the reason that Frank Lloyd Wright became such a legend is that he was the master of volumes and, and expanding your sense of volumes. Even if the physical space wasn't that large, he could expand that volume. Well, dance does that in every moment on stage. It's expanding an emotional space. It's expanding the physical space. I mean, it really takes it on in a way that I was blown away. I had not been introduced to dance at all before that, except for my sister's recitals, which were endless and awful. But this was like professional dance on stage. And it was phenomenal to me and still is. It's just one of those things that while there is structure to it, there are no boundaries. And that is very appealing to me because creativity can go wherever it wants. So my mom was the chair of the Joffrey Ballet when I was, you know, young. And she would drag me to the ballet as a kid. And as a kid, like, no kid wants to watch ballet. So it was like, for me anyway, it was so, so boring. However, what I loved the most about it truly was being able to go backstage with her and see the dancers and just talk to them and really start learning about, you know, how they got into dance and why they do it. It was just so cool to do that. And as I've now gotten older, I have this appreciation of dance. So I could back up for one second because I am a terrible podcast interviewer, uh, but you are the managing director of an actual ballet company. I'm curious if I had a kid, which my husband would kill me, and I wanted to bring my kid to see dance, to see ballet, when I know what I was like as a kid, how would you get me excited about it? Like, how do parents get their kids excited to see ballet, to see dance, to get into that world? Well, I think it's it's a matter of that first step, breaking the boundary to get in there and to be able to find a way to get rid of the preconceptions, which I had to. Ballet is tippy toes and, and tutus. Who wants that? If and, and you have to be five foot two and weigh 110 pounds or 105 pounds if you're a woman. So it's like that was gone for me in fourth grade. There was no way I could do that. So it's just like that. that's not the way to do it. I think the real thing is to always couch it in movement and where movement takes you. All of the reality shows that came out that were like you think you can dance and, and the various competitions and things like that. That can get a kid excited, but then when they watch concert dance, it's a whole different thing. And it takes a, a sort of deeper um, engagement with it. And I've often thought of it as like reading a book and whatever genre a person likes, but being drawn in and then taken on a journey and then completing that journey. But this one happens to be through movement, music, lights, and the whole bit. It's sort of a whole book put together in 3D. And I, I think actually I did see a dance concert when I was in undergraduate and it happened to be Alvin Ailey. And I sat through most of the concert. It was kind of ho-hum. And then they did Revelations. And I know all of them are probably sick of it, but the profound effect and impact that that has on people and as a calling card and as a portal into it is just an amazing thing. So I would tell you to take your kid to something contemporary for sure <laughs> so they don't see the you know, Sleeping Beauty for six hours or something like that, but like get into it and, and really finding and defining movements that are things that they can do. Mm. Of course, if you take ballet from the time you're three, you can do those moves, but most people don't. So how do you, how do you get them in? You show them that a simple act like sitting in a chair can, can become part of choreography. It's 
I have to tell you, it is so lovely to hear you describe it and your passion. Because as I'm sitting here, obviously I'm listening to you, but I'm seeing what you're talking about. It's clear why you have the job that you do. And the other thing is that I have a lot of friends whose kids are wanting to get into dance. They think they want to be a ballerina one day or whatever it is. How hard is it? Once you like, if, if your kid comes to you at five and like, I really want to do this, how hard is it to actually be successful at this and get a job? and make It's money? extraordinarily hard because there are so few places where a person, especially in ballet, with contemporary and modern dance, there are more options available, I think, at different levels. But if you really want to make it as a ballet dancer, I mean, you commit your life to it and you go away almost to boarding school to be in a school of American ballet or one of those equivalents and you make it your career path. But then when you think about it, there are so few positions out there. I mean, how many ballerinas can San Francisco Ballet actually hire? For those 50 that they have on staff, there are probably a thousand out there that wanted to be part of that 50. So it's it's kind of these layers of things that go on. I wouldn't I actually wouldn't recommend it to anybody unless you're a guy. There are lots of positions for guys and very few guys that go into it because of the stigmas associated with it. Hmm. So I think that the it would be I, I can't imagine it. And almost everyone I've talked to, even the present artistic director that I work with, she went away from her home at the age of 16 and went to San Francisco Ballet. And she was in a dorm and and she followed her dream. So she left her home, her family in Texas to do that. And she made it. There was no guarantee. She went into the school and then what happens? But it's the creme de la creme in the school. And then on stage, it's, it's one step more with fewer people. So it's a tough one. And it's hard on the body. And the career doesn't last long. There are the few exceptions that continue dancing after, say, mid-30s. There are the few exceptions, and they're they're beautiful and they're wonderful. But a lot of people are done by the time they're thirty. Yeah. Like, then what? A lot of them haven't gone to college. They barely finished high school because they went off to a ballet school and did a GED or home study or independent study. So they have to sort of find their way either in dance or completely change. And that's one of the beautiful things of working at SMU and Ballet, where I work now. There are a lot of opportunities for dancers off the stage for when they're ready to step off. Some of them are doing it while they're on the stage, but there's there's ample opportunity in costume design, in website design, in social media, all sorts of things, different ways that they can go. And they're starting it out based on dance, but it'll be something that they can take with them. And they can also take the discipline of the years of training with them as well. So it's nice. So... So I've gotten a few things from this. Number one, if you're a boy and you want to get into ballet, go for it because there's a ton of jobs over there, right? But if you're a parent and your daughter comes to you, right? And she's like, this is what I want to do. I hear you. It's a it's a cutthroat field. And if you make it, you're not there for very long and you're terrible to your body and you're probably not making very much money. So obviously we've not sold this. I, I think about it this way. Any job that you have, there's good and bad. And I think we all sort of fantasize or romanticize something else that we're not doing, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a job getting up on stage and doing the same performance night after night and practicing for it for as long as you have and all of that stuff. But like you deal with ballerinas, you deal with dancers, you deal with performers. What gets them excited to get on stage and to do this? It's the performance. It's, it's not just the adulation. It's really about how they open their soul in a different way. I think that that's really, it's an expressiveness that they don't get elsewhere. They don't have the opportunity elsewhere. I think the communication of dance is really important to them and what that means. And while there are prescribed steps that they do, they still have to bring meaning to them. They have to bring emotion to them. And I think that that's what they do. It's another part of them that needs to be fulfilled. And maybe it's things that they can't express in their daily life but they can definitely express it on stage. I have a, a niece that has decided she's now just finishing up her, her undergraduate degree in musical theater. And her father was just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. What are you going to do with that? And, and I was like, just let her do it. She will learn a lot in the process. And it turns out she's really good with hair and makeup and she could have a whole career in that as well. But when she gets on stage, she is so socially challenged when she's not on stage, she becomes a different person when she's on stage. 
she is a different person that I have never seen before. I know more about her as a person having seen her on stage. And I think that's what creativity does and, and, and expression on the stage can do for a lot of people. I see it in the dancers that we have. They range in age from 22 to 35, I think. And they all share that. They can be themselves or what they consider their true selves. They can be that on stage where they may not be able to be it elsewhere. That's really lovely. I watched a, a special on Tony Bennett and he's like 95 now and ha- is suffering from Alzheimer's. And so if you're talking to him, he's not there as a person, but they showed like when he went on stage, he was like his old self and he just was like, normal. And then when he got back off stage again, he was back to having Alzheimer's. And I think that that's so cool to really think about it that way, that you you are this person on stage that you may not be in real life, but that is who you are. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a deep essence of oneself, I think. Uh, I really do. I like that. I do want to get into the world of performance art and, and management, but I do want to know one thing. I talked to a friend of mine who runs a, a theater down here in LA and at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were talking about what performers were doing because they obviously couldn't perform in person. Things are like back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's very annoying. But do you see a difference in terms of how how people can get into this world, how people can perform, how people can get in front of audiences moving forward? Like maybe we'll go back to normal in terms of having a theater. There's been a lot of this stuff online and a lot of other stuff that hasn't been in person. So do you see some kind of a difference moving forward when we get back to somewhat of a normal world? Whatever that is, back to the before times. Yes, I think think that one thing that happened for performers, for artists, was that they were more independent during the pandemic. Even though we kept all of our dancers, we had 16 dancers. We lost two during the pandemic because they just needed to go home. And so we we were carrying 14 dancers and we couldn't bring in choreographers like we normally did. And we were working in pods. And so there was only so much we could do in terms of creation of new work or old work that we could draw out duets, trios, or, or quartets for people to do. And they really had to look inward to themselves as an artist, not just a dance artist, but as a creative artist. And I think that that's something that they will take with them. And it really created an intimacy with the audience. They didn't know that Jane Ballerina could actually edit film. They put together a dance film. They didn't realize that she could do that or that Joe Ballerino could actually choreograph. So they were having to dig deep in their own creativity, and most of them wanted it. Uh, so there were maybe three out of the 14 that were like, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. I, I will share your vision with you, and I will do it with you. But there was there were many more voices um, at the table on the screen, and it was very interesting in how they interacted with each other and really interesting as to how they engaged the audience, even through a screen We had a lot of Zoom calls where it was questions and answers with a a pod of dancers after watching their film or an outdoor performance or whatever. And they had to really look at why they were doing it and how they were doing it and if they wanted to keep doing it. And it was really lovely. And now that we're back in the theater, um, the audience members will go rushing up to the dancers in the lobby. They'll wait for them to come from backstage and they'll go rushing up to them. And it's like, okay, so when you were on Zoom in October, you said, and I saw it on stage and that was just amazing to me. And 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 they're proud and they're happy and they feel connected. And so I think there's a, a, a new level of engagement that comes out for both the artist and for the patrons, the audience members. And I think the distribution is unlimited. So I found that it was mostly the hardcore that knew us. But there was at one point we were doing a Christmas ballet performance online, recorded, obviously. And I think we had two people from Germany or somebody from France, somebody from China. Well, we have a dancer from China. So his his family was on. But we had this sort of international audience going on and some people that had just stumbled upon it. And it was really lovely. I mean, you're not going to convert a thousand people to it, but we did convert 12 people to it, which is 12 more than we had before. It was very fun to watch how that worked and how it's now playing out in situ because we tend to perform in the greater Bay Area. 
And it's not just a matter of going from one venue to the next. This was like all of a sudden they came to us for the venue and really engaged in it. I, I think that there's a new way of viewing things. I don't think that video does justice to dance a lot of times. You don't get the full three-dimensionality. And I think that's what people are rediscovering as they get back in, something they may have taken for granted or not noticed, didn't have the perspective on it. Now they get back into the theater and they're watching it and they're like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, look at that. <laughs> so much more there. And we just finished our first week of performances of our spring season on Sunday. And that was a lot of what I was hearing in the audience. And the dancers are loving it. They yearn for more, but they're also happy to be back being told what to do. As we bring in outside choreographers, professional choreographers that are coming in and, and putting work on them, they're also happy to do that. But they will always put their creative face forward. The pandemic has sucked in so many ways, obviously. But I think the the positive that's come out of this is this, right? You and I are not in the same city. We're on Zoom, but we're able to do this. Right. And, and I've been able to see performances and meet people all around the world through Zoom or online or whatever it is. And so I think that, yeah, your performances, all performers have this opportunity to bring in a brand new audience all over the world, of course, where you have young kids in Brazil or in China or in France who can still watch what you're doing. But you're right. There is obviously something about being in person. I think we missed that. I think hopefully we will not forget that we didn't have that. Yeah, There is definitely something lovely about being able to reach an audience, not necessarily in Northern California. Yes. And I hope that's something that we continue to do. Well, the other thing in conjunction with that is that we've had so many audience members, and I know I, I, I experienced it the first in-person concert that we did. It wasn't on stage, it was outside, and, but it became very emotional. And just talking to people as they are slowly allowing themselves back into the theater, they're having a similar response. And I think all of that is part of being back part of a community and enjoying something as a community. But it's also that idea of like, it's touching me in the same way that's probably touching the artist. The reason that their passion is there, there's something deep in there that may or may not be able to be expressed, but it can be felt. And as they're watching it, they're engrossed and they're engaged and they're going with it. And it, it has brought, shall we say, grown men to tears as they get back into it. And they're just like, oh my goodness, this is so great. And that... Basically, that's where the administrative staff will high five in the, in the lobby going, we did it. That's why we're here. That's yeah. why we did it. We are moving people and we are engaging people. And what more could you need? We all share that experience and shared experiences are important. Yeah. Again, we're going to come out of this at some point. And I really do hope that people remember and don't take for granted anymore what we will have again. And that's yes. So... So, so vital, especially for programs and service, like what you do, it is in person. And I hope that we remember that. So I want to pivot, if we can, to the admin piece, because I think for sure there are people who listen to this who, you know, are performers or want to be performers or all of that. And I appreciate that advice that you're giving. There are also people who want to get into management and you are in charge. So, okay, first let's stick with COVID for a minute. I'd love to know, as we come out of COVID, how it will change, has changed, and will continue to change your leadership, your direction, your strategy of running a ballet company. It is, it is so much harder to hire right now. There are a lot of opportunities, obviously, in the job market for people to go and, and get a a so-called for-profit job and get market rate and all that sort of thing. But I think that one of the things that I am learning is that each individual comes with their own story. And I have had a deeper understanding of why they stay and really understanding that and hearing them and playing with that. It's really that people are trying to find a voice in it. And how can I aid that? How can I help them find a voice they're not going to be on stage. Maybe they were on stage previously. We do have a couple of former dancers who work with us. But how do you find that way of bringing it forward and then allowing them 
a perspective and a way to enhance or to bring the message forward, which is really interesting right now because there are different methods than when I started 30 years ago. I mean, social media, which I'm still a troglodyte on that, I don't do it, but everybody else does and it's immediate. And how do you find ways that they can tap into their tool bags of tricks? And do we allow them to post during a performance? Right now we say no, but like, is there some way we could figure out a way that they can find this to do it, to get the word out farther or whatever it is, but they're always thinking and they're bringing new, interesting ideas to it. And I have to remember that I'm not that old, that I can adapt to this. And like, how do we, how do we do that? What does that mean? What are we bringing forward? What are we getting rid of? And I think what we're getting rid of is the strict hierarchy in it all. I think what's bringing back is that the people it's attracting right now are equally passionate and managing passions can be very difficult, but at least you have the passion there. So how do you find that? And it's in the individual and how the individual plays in the group. Like I said, we romanticize things that we don't do. And so you're running this company, right? I'm going to start with the negative and then we're going to continue to the positive. How's that? So we'll start with what's your least favorite thing about your job? And then what's like your favorite thing about your job? My least favorite thing is the bullshit that people tend to get a little bit, a little bit full of themselves and that their crisis is the only crisis that matters. And it's like, no, I've got 20 other crises in line behind you. So move to the side and we'll see if we can get back to you. I think that's the hardest thing. And I think that a lot of people just dismiss that. But what I try to do is hear them and bring them some satisfaction in what they're doing, but I can't always do that. I always say to them, like, look, I'm I'm very open to taking ideas, but in the end, I have to make the decision. And a lot of people forget that. There's a lot of politics in any job place. And, and I think that that comes into play too. And it's very hard for an administrative staff in particular, because they feel like they're on the sidelines all the time. Because it's the dancers, the dancers. And it's like, yeah, it is about the dancers. But like I said, when we can high five in the lobby because we brought emotion, passion, and experience to somebody, that's part of what we did too. I will jump in for one second. So I will agree with you that there is always in every job going to be that bullshit. That's just the way that works. But I really do think that people forget that if it weren't for ushers and printers and accountants and whatever it is, that just because you've got these fantastic performers, they actually wouldn't have a place to perform if it weren't for you and if it weren't for the admin team. And so I do think that that is something that folks need to remember, that at the end of the day, yes, we are going to go see the Nutcracker, for example, at Christmas time. And yeah, we're going to see it for the performers on stage. But like that wouldn't be there if it weren't for you and your team. So that's number one. And I'm always so frustrated when people don't seem to understand that like, yeah, everybody matters. And just because you're in charge, you're still dealing with all the same BS as everybody else. And so yeah. I think that's really important. Basically, here I am backing you up, Lori. That's my job, backing <laughs> you up. So now that we've pissed off every single dancer in your troupe, um, tell me what is your like ultimate favorite thing about what you do? My favorite thing has always been that I feel like I go into every day with an outline of what needs to get done. But the minute I walk through the door, I have to have any one of five hats available to stick on my head because there's so much going on. I love that. I love like planning it and reacting to it and pushing it forward. And one minute I'm submitting property tax to the city or the county. And then the next minute I'm talking about marketing strategy and then a donor calls and wants to come by the building to see it. And it's like, yeah, come on over. But it's that constant variety that goes on. Doesn't mean that there are some days where it's like, just leave me alone. I need to get something done. But I love that feeling of like, okay, we've got so many fronts to address. And how do we, how do we bring that all together and make it interesting? And there's always something new. Even after 30 years of doing this, there's something new all the time. And I love that. And it doesn't have to do with people. It may be an issue. It might be anything, but it's just, and, and I can go home at night, hit the bourbon and feel good about it. It's just like, yeah, this works. This really works. And 
again, the payoff is, is going into a theater or a performance of any sort, even if it's a Zoom call following a, a recorded performance, just to kind of feel the glow of, of people's excitement is, is something that, that makes it worthwhile. Yeah, and I bet you're like a phenomenal fundraiser, Lori, because literally just the way that you were talking about it, like makes me want to give you money. So <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, and I do, again, I'll go back to what you said earlier, there would be no stage for your performers to actually do a performance if it weren't for you going out there and fundraising. So, yeah, yeah. I don't do as much fundraising as I used to, but I do it more subversively now in the sense that in the lobbies and talking with people and bringing it up and not letting it get into conversations about the weather, but like keeping it focused on the art and what we're up to without being a a pure salesman. I think in COVID, we have really learned a lot. We've learned about food insecurity and people not even having internet at home to have their kids use a computer to do homework and all kinds of things that I don't think all of us necessarily realized, right? And and it's, I mean, I think I read today that seven out of 10 Americans are at this point living paycheck to paycheck. Okay, knowing all of that, you fundraise for the arts. You are not feeding hungry people. You are not providing a bed for homeless people, right? right? So tell me why, as a donor, I should make a contribution to a performing arts organization like yours. I think it's twofold. I think that you walk the walk and talk the talk. And during COVID, I actually took five months of Mondays and worked at the local food bank as a volunteer dancers were making masks and they created 400 masks that they took down to the homeless shelter. We have class for a cause. We were doing it about once a month. I don't know if it's the same frequency now, but we just did one last week. It was about food poverty and we gave to our neighborhood food pantry. So we we raised 600 bucks um, for the food pantry and they told us that it would it would provide food for 100 families for six months. It's not just about the product on stage. It's about the people who are involved in it. And that's kind of how we've done it. What does it mean to do that? And it means that we are real people. We're authentic about it. And we walk the walk. We talk the talk. And I think partnerships with other organizations. We just did a LGBTQ plus night with our Christmas ballet. And a portion of the proceeds and all the proceeds from the after party went to Project Open Hand. And so we have a whole new list of of partners that we're working with over there and new friends that we've made over there. Those partnerships become important to who we are as an organization, but most importantly is to who we are as individuals. And I do think people are giving money to individuals, not to organizations per se, but the people who make up that organization. And we have a good bunch right now and our fundraising has not suffered during covid even people that were buying tickets, but we had no tickets to sell, they were now giving donations and they've continued with that. And I think that's that's one of the things that with anything, whether you're raising money for a new space station, if it's really about the passion and about the people, people are going to give. That it's not just, oh, it's another ballet company. Does the world need another ballet company? Probably not. Do people need more social services? Yeah, they do, especially in the times like this. And so we as an organization and we as individuals participate in that. And I think that that speaks volumes for what we're doing. What is COVID in the end? I mean, everybody looks at it as like, what did it do to your ticket sales? Well, you don't even have to scratch your head on that one. It, It cratered them. So how do we find other relevant ways of being part of society? And, and that's what we do. And that's what people end up giving money to as well. There are hungry people and there are homeless people and all those are very important causes that we should all be giving to. But the arts are really important. And I don't want people to forget that, especially in times like these, the arts still deserve our attention and our donations and our understanding and appreciation of what you do. I don't think there's any other place where the freedom of speech is is more prevalent than in the arts. I mean, if you just think of the U.S. and, and our constitutional rights, I mean, it is it is a platform for that. Worldwide, it has defined epochs in history. And there's a reason for that, because it's once removed and it kind of hovers up here, but it's completely grounded at the same time. 
So it marks time, it marks place, it marks culture, it marks all of these things, and it cannot be overlooked. I think it's really important for us to remember what you're there for, especially in these kinds of times where it's just so insane out there. It is still really important to give to the arts. So the one part that we didn't talk about is folks who want to get into, say, running a theater, like, for example, running the music theater here in LA or the Philharmonic or the American Ballet. So coming from you who are running this organization, tell our listeners out there, if they want to move up and run some kind of performing arts organization, what do they need to know? I don't think it's a matter of having a degree in a certain something or experience in a certain something. I mean, I had experience in architectural history and started on the loading dock and I'm now in the penthouse. So it's like, how do you explain that? And I think it's really about the individual and what they need. I mean, you do have to come with certain skills, obviously. And you have to be given a chance. And I think right now is a perfect time because it's hard to find people and you really do have that passion that's out there. But I think that it's one of those things that it's like, what do you bring to it? And what do you want to express within it? A lot of organizations don't have any sort of um, flexibility for bringing people up. I mean, I work for what is considered a small ballet company. We have about a $4 million budget. Look at ABT and you're looking at $50 million. Am I qualified for that? I could be. If I put my mind to it and just said, what, this is no different than 4 million. I'm going for it, man. It's like a lot of belief in yourself and what you can bring to it. As we're hiring, we often talk about it's not the position, it's the person we're hiring. There are certain things that need to get done, obviously, but we're looking for a person that can do that plus. What else do they bring to us? And so I think that's, again, back to the authenticity, which is my my catchword these days about people's intent, their perceptions, their perspective, all of those sorts of things. So my last question in terms of leadership, I have noticed as a recruiter that at the beginning of COVID, a lot of folks who were looking to retire were like forced into retiring. They were like, we don't want to deal with this shit. We're out or retiring. The ones who stuck around wanted to get through COVID. And then finally they were like, cool, cool. I've gotten through COVID. Now it's time to retire. And you saw a lot of job openings last year. Things have turned a little bit around and COVID came back. They're still holding on. But I do know that there's going to be a huge generational shift and a huge transition. So the next generation of leaders, especially in your world, what do they need to know? How are things going to be different? Wow, that's a loaded question. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) One of the things that's going to be really important is making sure that there's still space in all of it for what we do. And I think that people have to understand that it will wax and wane in terms of its centrality in people's mindset. I do think we're going to undergo a huge shift in in the coming years. And I think there is kind of a culture war going on. It's almost like 1968 all over again. That sort of thing is going to be a sea change in terms of how we go after this. And I actually think it's going to bring about a kind of blank slate in some ways. What does it mean? Some of that will come out of the pandemic in the sense of that new, new avenues of expression were explored, whether it was film, video, different collaborations, all sorts of things. I think that will come out of it. But how do you put that together in a business model? I think will depend on what the readiness of the culture at large is for it. We need to evangelize, if necessary, advocate for the performing arts as a central part of any community of humanity, basically, and what it means. It's just as important as the sciences. It's just as important as business. It's just as important as all those other things. So two final questions that I have for you. The first is for a parent of a kid who wants to get into some kind of performing arts. Should they encourage it? Or should they be like, hey, this is a great idea, but let me teach you about math, for example. (laughs) I think they should encourage it. And they themselves should educate themselves to what other opportunities exist within it. Like I said, with my brother-in-law, it's like, yes, she's in musical theater, but 
man, she's really good at, at, at hair and makeup. So if she doesn't make it musical theater, she could be doing bar mitzvahs and weddings and, and she could get involved with a theater and do it for that. When there's a creativity involved in that, how do you, how do you find other ways of rationalizing it? And then my other brother-in-law's, one of his daughters said that she wanted to go to art school and he's a businessman. He's an investment banker. He said, no. And she's like, I think I'm going to do this. And so he had to go and educate himself on it. And now he is totally into it. So I would say to any parent, don't discourage it, encourage it and educate yourself on, on what it can be. It doesn't mean that they're going to be poor and living in the basement for the rest of their lives. It, it means that they're just taking a different tack on things. Okay. Like to be clear, as a parent, you want to teach your kid and, and give your kid all of the self-esteem that they're going to make it in the world. But it's also really great to say, or to know like, Hey, okay, you want to be a ballerina? Cool, cool, cool. But like four people are ballerinas in the world. So, yeah, so very well. And no matter what the Russians are going to beat you. So if that's the case, let's talk about like plan B or plan C. And I think that that's really, really good advice. But I think as you were saying earlier, there are so many other elements that go into any given performance or organization from the truck drivers to the ushers. I mean, there's so many other things in there. It's not unidimensional in any way. There are so many other things. It's a business. You put nonprofit on it and people change their mindset about it, but it's really a business and it takes some real effort to make that business work. And you, I didn't, I never danced a step in my life, but I found a way to make my way inside of, of dance and performing arts. And, and I think that that's something that anybody can find what they need inside of it. It's just a matter of how badly they want to do it and how much, in this case, the parents want to support it going forward. And I do think that, that that's really interesting that you say that because, again, it just reminds people that you may go into the world thinking you're going to be doing X, but at the end of the day, you end up being Y. And I got to tell you, Lori, there are a lot of expressions in nonprofit I hate. I think I hate lean in probably the most, but at the end of the day, you do have to lean in to your strengths and also to kind of just what life throws at you. God, I hate that expression. So <laughs> my my second question to you is, you're on the show and I really appreciate you talking about all of this, but you are still running a ballet company. Yeah. So would you very quickly tell us about your company and if somebody is so inclined to make a donation, why they should give to your organization? Well, I work for Smune Contemporary Ballet. Again, it's a 16-dancer organization. The founder, Michael Smuin, founded the organization in 1994. He passed away giving ballet class in 2007, and it's been carried forward by his muse, Celia Fushil. It's contemporary ballet, so there aren't a lot of tutus, thank goodness. Not a lot of tippy-toe. We do have point shoes, but there's not a lot of tippy-toe involved in it. But also, Michael was the, the preeminent entertainer. He was really into dance as a genre. So it, it covers tap and jazz and ballet, obviously. And it really covers the spectrum. And it allows access points to people for that. And I think one of the things that makes us compelling is that we really are about the creativity and the engagement with the art form. And we speak to almost 100,000 people a year. We reach that many people with our performances. So I think that there's something there about expression and individual fulfillment of audience members, of artists, of everybody else that, that really comes forward. And that's that's kind of where we we drive our stake into the ground. So that's what we can offer people. So where can we find you online? What's your website? It's smuinballet.org and smuin is S-M-U-I-N ballet.org. I really, really, really appreciate everything, how you describe dance, how you described how you got into this world. And as a parent, how you should respond <laughs> to your kid wanting to become a ballerina. And actually on that note, I'm going to tell you one thing. As a young gay boy who wasn't out yet, I really enjoyed the tights that all the male uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy them for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the package is nice. <laughs> 
I gotta be honest, I love it. I think it's totally like, yeah. Again, as a young gay kid, I was like, wow, that's amazing. I should come here more often. But yeah. <laughs> anyway. So Lori, I really appreciate you being on the show with me. Thank you very much. And I hope that one of these days I can actually come to Northern California and we could have a drink in person. Absolutely. And thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And I really love talking with you and appreciate your insights on things. And I'll get you later for the hard questions. Thank you, Lori. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what'd you think? Again, fantastic interview. I have to tell you, Lori, truly, like the way she explains dance and the way that she explained how bodies move and how artful it is, it did actually for a split second make me want to go watch ballet again. You know what else she made me want to do was go look at some Frank Lloyd Wright architecture. Mm. Because I actually truly love Lori's journey that she started going to a school for architecture and somehow found her way by happenstance, as so many people in nonprofit do, working for Smuin and and in the arts. And I also loved all the talk about how much the company was doing in the community during COVID when they couldn't be dancing. Right. Right. I really enjoyed this interview. The other reason why I liked it so much is because it reminded me yet again of how lucky we are, you know, to be able to enjoy things because it could be taken away with COVID. It could be taken away in a heartbeat. So to be able to like go to see a performance, to go to see a show, to be with friends and and people out there. That's what this interview also showed me and reminded me. So yes, the answer is that Lori made me appreciate dance as my mom tried to teach me as a kid. You always ask me at the end of these things, you always catch me off guard and say, is there anything else I want to leave with the listener? And in this one, I am going to say so profoundly, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And if COVID has taught us anything, it is that. So I hope everyone goes out there when they feel comfortable, goes back to the theater and goes back and enjoys the arts in person. Agreed. And... Our next podcast, which will be coming out at some point when I come back from my trip, will be with Shelby Williams-Gonzalez, who is the executive director of Inner City Arts, one of my favorite nonprofits here in LA. Shelby's amazing. I adore her. And I can't wait for everybody to learn about her story and learn more about her organization. Awesome. We're going to keep rolling with the arts. And speaking of learning more about our organization, if you want to learn more about our show or about Envision Consulting, you can find us on the web at envisionnonprofit.com. Or you can find us on the social media platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and like us.